Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi, welcome to Talking Movies, show number five. Doug, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, John. Well, I love to hear that magnificent voice. And I'm especially excited about today's show because this is the first lady guest we've had. She's an outstanding writer and she's a colleague and close friend. And without her and her talents, my books wouldn't have not been possible. And today... She has a book of her own to talk about. And so here she is, Carol Honig. Carol, 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 how are you? It's great to see you again. You look wonderful. And when you speak, you'll sound wonderful because you have a great voice. <laughs> you know, it's been, I guess, almost five years since I've actually seen you in person. Yeah, it has been. Yeah, I would think so. That was in Manhattan. That's right. It was yeah. the uh, the screening, the first screening in New York of the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And like all the very lucky things that happened in my life, you popped up to see it. And that's how I met you. <laughs> and well, you, I feel fortunate, too. Well, I am much more fortunate because you not only changed my life. You improved it because without you, I would have never had the first book, uh, my autobiography, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, about my life. And I would have never had my second book about the wittiest man in America is a Canadian about my uh, thoughts. And now because of you, I have this fantastic, fun, fast, easy to read. There you go. The greatest reviews I ever read. And, you know, Carol, it, uh, first of all, I hate to talk about myself. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because for four years we had somebody in the White House who did nothing but that, you know. But I do like it if somebody, I, I don't mind if, I don't care what anybody says about me personally, because I'm not that personable, but I do like it when somebody, says something about nice about my work because I identify emotionally and intellectually with my, 
my work because it happens to be what kept me alive. But to write a book like this is a total switch for you because mm-hmm. you're a novelist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But working with you, John, I, I can't. How could I say no? I love working with you. Well, yeah, but let's get back to the business of, of being a novelist. First of all, I could never be a novelist because the novel and, and I've read thousands of books and half of them are novels and I've loved everything that I've read or almost everything that I've read. But to be a novelist, you have to have an imagination. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I do not have an imagination <laughs> because there's just so much reality around me to talk about and make observations about. So when did you start becoming interested in being a writer and did going to the movies have anything to do with that? Uh, I became interested in being a writer when I was, um, I was very young, um, where I grew up in upstate New York. It was a little teeny tiny town called Cherubusco. And we had no libraries. We had no outlets for me to be able to go and get books until school was in section in session. So if school was in session, then I could go to the school library. So during the downtime, I had to write my own stories. And I wrote one story when I was in fifth grade and I had shown it to my teacher and she loved it. I mean, obviously it was very raw, but um, the fact that this teacher found value in what I was writing, that was the beginning of it. And of course, where I grew up, we only had three stations, John. Um, and one of them was out of Canada in French. So the, the, I was limited to how much I could see, but there were movies when they came on, I would gobble them up and I would enjoy watching movies and think I could write something that way. And, you know, that was years ago, but that's how it started. What was the first novel uh, you published uh, first novel you wrote, if, because it might have taken a long time to get it published. I mean, it's such a terrible process. You're there alone looking at an empty page, and you have to type, type, and then you have to type hundreds of pages. <laughs> then you probably go to the yellow pages looking for an agent. I mean, when did you start doing that? Did you find an agent? How long did it take you to write your first novel? What was it called, and how was it received? Well, my first novel, it took me, are you ready? It took me 17 years to write. Oh, my goodness gracious. To get it to the point that I was pleased with it. Um, When my youngest child went on the school bus. What was it called? It was called Of Little Faith. And it, it started out as a memoir. Um, because I, I was going through this spiritual thing in my life and I needed to write this memoir. And then I got about two weeks into it and I thought, who cares what I have to say? And then the characters started to show themselves to me. And it took me a month and a half to write the first draft. So a month and a half and I'd be writing till two in the morning, get my kids on the bus and then continue writing. But then to learn the process of writing and to be happy with what I had written was 17 years. And during that time, I put that on hold and I worked on my second novel, which was called Without Grace. And Grace is not anything with spiritual. It's name, it's the name of the protagonist in this book. Well, she wasn't the protagonist yet. 
that she came up in the prequel. And so uh, to find an agent, back then, I didn't have the internet to really access. So I had to send it out, hard copies. And you'd get these rejections of self-addressed stamped envelopes that you would have to pay for yourself. And then I finally, eventually, when I was working at Borders Books in Manhattan, uh, a, a gentleman who was in the industry found out I was a writer, asked to see what I'd written, loved it. And he shared a building with this high profile agent. And she said she loved it, but um, she wasn't hungry enough because she was very successful and it didn't go anywhere with her. It was a long, tawdry story why that happened. And then a second agent who happened to be Mary Higgins Clark's agent uh, asked to see it. Now, I'm my writing is nothing like Mary's. Um, I'm a little bit more less commercial than hers. But um, the agent loved it, but she couldn't send it out because the first agent said she had sent it out all over the place. So then I was working with, um, I don't know if you know Amy Fisher, if you're familiar with Long Island Lolita. Yes, I am. So she had a book published, self-published, and her self-publisher heard my story, asked to see my, my novel, had her editor read it, and they asked if they could publish it without me spending a dime loved it and it went on to win awards and that was without grace oh uh, I, goodness gracious <laughs> so it's a long story it's oh a long my gosh, story. but how anybody could stick to it that long <laughs> and that's the story of many many successful writers just it takes them forever and ever to get there yes. i could never do that i absolutely <laughs> and that was one of the reasons that i loved being a comic Because if you're a comic, you sit down and you write a joke. That night you go out and you find out if it works. And oh my gosh, it's over and you're off and doing (laughs) it again. So what on earth? Well, let's get to the business of movies. Since we're talking movies, Mm -hmm. what were some of the first movies that had first an emotional impact on you and an intellectual impact on you? Okay, well, the first one, as you probably know, is uh, Wizard of Oz, um, because it it came on every year. It was something where you had to wait to watch it. And I just, um, there was just something charming to me about it. And so I I enjoyed that movie. And I remember that our neighbors got a color TV. And so they invited us to come over to watch Wizard of Oz in color. Um, and it, it wasn't just the witch's face who was green. Everybody's face was green on this color TV. Yeah, did, but did you know in 1939, the movie actually bombed? I read when I did the book with you, and I was so upset to hear that. But yeah, I, and I you was, also, <laughs> yeah, well, I could understand it because I, you know, I saw Frankenstein and I saw Dracula and I saw cat people and I saw the mummy. Not one of them scared me. But when the trees and the Wizard of Oz, I ducked under the seat. I mean, (laughs) and we talk about that in the greatest reviews I've ever read. And um, I, I, I appreciated that. So that was just one of the ones. And then the one that had an intellectual um, effect on me. And I write about this in the book is imitation of life. And I saw that 
was with my parents and my sister. And I think my younger brother was sitting in the living room, this little cramped living room. And my father never watched movies. My father only watched the news. That was it. He felt like anything else was a time suck and a waste. But he sat in front of that TV with um, to watch Imitation of Life. And Linus Turner. Yeah. And my older brother had come in and he came in the scene where we're all crying at the end of the movie. And my he made a joke and my father turned around in the seat and he ripped a new one for my brother. And he, he I, I was like stunning to me to see my father that emotional about a movie and that the movie itself was emotional. But seeing my father's reaction to it always stuck with me. So that that meant a lot to me. Well, you know, getting back to the Wizard of Oz. And I I didn't go back to dare see it in a movie. So like you, I saw it in living color when the television set finally came along. And that must have been in the mid 50s or so. Maybe it was about 17 or 18. I think it was the first time I ran away to the United States <laughs> illegally. And at, that might have been the point where I might have realized I was a born critic, but didn't realize it. And that is that the movie does not have a really happy ending. Now, (laughs) you think Dorothy says, well, home, God bless home, there's no place like home. But the movie starts with Margaret Hamilton, this wicked uh, civil servant who's coming (laughs) to pick up Toto for some reason or other and take him away. And then the hurricane or the typhoon hits and off they go into the land of Oz. <laughs> and you see Margaret Hamilton is the Wicked Witch and everybody in the farm there. It's just a fabulous film. But at the end, no place like home. They have not resolved the fact that Margaret may come back on a bicycle and take Toto away. <laughs> and I told my friends that and they got angry at me as a kid for ruining their movie because <laughs> it upset them. So anyway, I must tell you, um, this book, I've I've read maybe six or seven books in one day, some of them really long, heavy books. This is the first book in about four decades that I've read in one solitary day. It's just amazing what you did. And you mentioned something about your first book, that you were having this problem with faith or whatever religious or spiritual or something like that but I discovered things about you because Mm -hmm. of your craftsmanship and your brilliance in introducing some of the reviews especially I think it was Jesus Christ Superstar (sighs) by Norman Jewison and tell me what you talked about when you led into that And do you have the book in front of you? I do. Okay. What I want you to do, I want you to tell that little story about what you were going through. First, I should establish. Are you married? I'm divorced. How long have you been divorced? How many children do you have? I have three children and I have been divorced close to 20 years now, I guess. Oh, my God. And you maybe 15 years. I don't know. (laughs) You raised the three children. You you had blank pages for 17 years while you were (laughs) writing your first book. You did all of that yourself. And I presume you have pets. Oh, 
Yes, I, I, I do. I foster dogs and then um, I'm a foster failure because I ended up adopting them. Um, and yeah, I have two dogs right now. Well, I have uh, three cats, you know. Love it. Uh, Mark Twain said, show me man who loves cats and that's all I need to know about him. But <laughs> Mark Twain wrote one of the greatest lines ever in history. He said, uh, 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 why, what do... What do cats and a lie have in common? Or what is, no, he said, what is the difference between a cat and a lie? That's What's what he, the answer? The answer is a cat only has nine lives. Oh. Is that beyond brilliant? That's so, anyway, yeah. what I would like, so obviously you, you were raised by religious zealots no no actually i was raised in a catholic home but my mom um had been my mom married my father she had become a catholic to marry my father she was raised in the methodist church and um her family her side of the family i put them on a pedestal because i i was searching and so then uh when i moved to long island i came to a um born again church a fundamental church and i felt like it had the answers for me for well I think I told you I came to the Lord in 72 or 73 and I came to my senses a few years later and and that's what happened but in my journey of searching my mom was a big guiding light to that because she really wanted me to have the faith that she had and so when Jesus Christ Superstar came out and um and we would have to travel like 30 miles to see a movie in a theater um she came with me to see it and so we were watching the movie and the scene where the money changes and jesus was you know turning over the tables my mother said oh no no he would never have done that okay now what I, I, go ahead what i'd like you to do i i would like you to find oh dear my go ahead <laughs> I would like you to find my review of Jesus Christ's Superstar because I don't know whether I believe in telepathy or not or any of that stuff, <laughs> even though I've met two people in my life who really were psychic. One was a famous European psychic, Peter Herkos, who demonstrated it in a dinner meeting that I was at, at a famous producer's home. That story's in the book, it's unbelievable. And the other purpose per, person happens to be my wife who predicted exactly when her father would die, which was just right. startling to me. So do you have, and do you have the review of Jesus Christ Superstar? Because for some reason, or, and I must tell you when I was a critic, I, I would sometimes see a movie, the studio would show me a, a film two or three months in advance. I never, mm -hmm. ever once took a note. I never made any kind of notes. I was just a person who could only write on dead. That astounds me. That really astounds me. I, I... Uh, and what would happen, <laughs> Carol, is that when it was time for me to go on the air, or I was five years at uh, KNBC in Los Angeles, from uh, 70, uh, let's see, uh, to 70, 74, 73 to like 79, almost six years. 
And then I was 10 years at Los Angeles Magazine. And what would happen, I would sit at the typewriter and I would write what was in my head. Uh, I mentioned, I didn't mention it in the book, but I'll mention it now. Nicholas Tesla said, now here's a, a, the greatest human genius of all time, the greatest inventor of all time, holds hundreds of patents. He said publicly, often he never invented anything. Tesla said he would just sit down and relax and open his mind. And he said, in his mind would somehow magically appear what it is that he was thinking about the complete blueprint. And he said, I became a stenographer and literally wrote down and drew what the universe, he called it, the universe sent me. Mm-hmm. That is how I write. You know, when I read these reviews and I found myself laughing a lot, I never remembered <laughs> writing one of them. But what I would sit down and I'd type. So when I saw Jesus Christ Superstar two months beforehand, came time to review it, and I sat down, and I don't know where it came from, but the review came out in biblical prose. Right. <laughs> and it hammered the film. So what, because you have such a nice voice and it's your book. <laughs> I, it's a very brief review. I'd like you to read the review of Jesus Christ Superstar. And then we'll get to some of those wonderful questions you asked me that start the book. So go ahead. All righty. Well, I did want to tell you too, that I can understand what Tesla was saying, because a lot of my writing takes place away from my computer because the characters show themselves to me. I could be ironing and all of a sudden I'm like, I have to take notes because it comes to me. So I get what you're saying. Absolutely. All right. So here is your delicious, wonderful review. In the beginning, there was the play Jesus Christ Superstar. It was full of wonderful music and vitality and universal pictures looked out over the prophets it maketh and said, that is good. Let there be a movie. But the movie was without a director. And so Universal looked over Fiddler on the Roof and the prophets it maketh and said, that is good. Let Norman Jewison be the director. And so it was. But the movie was without a writer. So Jewison said, let me be one of the writers. And so he made himself a writer. And lo, the movie was still without a writer. (laughs) And the director writer was without ideas. And lo, he looked again upon Fiddler and said, I have an idea. I will go on location to the Holy Land and do Fiddler on the Mount in the land of the prophets. Prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. It was a bad idea. And so the talented cast was assembled in the wilderness and for 40 days and 40 nights wandered without direction. (laughs) And when Jewison looked upon the daily rushes, which were without form and void of imagination, verily he said unto himself, what do I do now? And a voice from the darkness, universal tower, saith, how about some symbolism? And so Jewison brought forth forth Tanks, four tanks, two jets, one machine, everything but a partridge in a pear tree. And the symbolism was obscure. And when Jewison looked again upon the rushes, he said, I have another idea. To keep the audiences awake, let there be decibels. And verily, verily, 
The beautiful music was made loud noise. Another bad idea. And when universal publicity looked upon Jewison's finished work, they said, yeah, it is good. Because that's what they're paid to say. But yeah, verily and low. When the audience looks up Jesus Christ Superstar, it will say, forgive them for they know not what they do. <laughs> I had a hard time getting through this, John, without, re- without laughing. Wait, that- I cannot remember any of that. And, and shame on me that I'm laughing at my own stuff. But Oh, no, it's great. <laughs> funny, it's funny. And again, all of this happened by accident. And the thing that I enjoyed doing with you is because you said you couldn't start to assemble all of us. First of all, you had asked me, did I have any videos uh, from my days on camera at NBC? And I must tell you, for the five years, six years at NBC, I never had a contract. And the reason I never had a contract, they said they would own the material. And I was only getting 100. I did it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and only got paid Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I was making $350 a week. I was responsible for 10% of the audience share, according to research. And Kelly Lang, the weather girl, was getting $100,000 a year for getting the same amount of people. But I didn't want anybody to own my material because that's all I had. That's all. It, Mm -hmm. It was just me. That's all all I had. And you know, the thing that I liked is it all started by accident and you didn't want to do, oh yeah, you had asked, I didn't have any videos. And then you asked me if I had any of the LA magazines. Well, I only had six or seven in my office. And you said, you didn't keep any? And I said, I don't know. And then my wife reminded me, well, you got a trunk downstairs. You got five trunks of stuff. Maybe one has the magazines. So I went down and the first one I opened 120 copies. So I sent you all of that stuff and you put the, I didn't have anything to do with it after that. You put the book together, but you thought, you know, I have to do an (laughs) interview. I have to do an interview with you, John, so we can find out how this all happened. And do you remember the first question you asked me? Oh, goodness. No. I, I believe the first question you asked me, why did you want to become a critic? Oh, right. And what were your qualifications to be one? <laughs> and my answer was, I never wanted to be a critic and I had no qualifications <laughs> to be one. I was a stand-up comic. But as a kid, uh, uh, and, and I was inspired to do comedy because my two heroes in television, first of all, were Jack Parr who was the best and the brightest and the funniest and the most human of all the Tonight Show hosts. And then Edward R. Murrow, America's last great and one and only newsman. But in order to have a talk show, he had to do stand-up. So I decided to do stand-up. And two of my heroes were Lenny Bruce and Jonathan Winters, who did great movie satires. Nobody did Dracula like <laughs> Lenny Bruce. So that's what I did. And then accidentally, I ended up getting the AM Los Angeles show. Again, what, what had happened, there was something wonderful 
in America when I came down here that sadly no longer exists. And it was something called the Fairness Doctrine. And the other thing was the free press, which no longer exists. I mean, when John Kennedy was alive, there were 1,500 different owners of television and radio stations, and Bill Clinton reduced it to six major corporations. So the easiest way to fix America is to reverse that. But in any event, because of the Fairness Doctrine, in Los Angeles, there were literally, literally thousands of Chicanos marching against the license of ABC. And a number of television stations lost their licenses because they weren't broadcasting to the community. So what they decided to do is they decided to dump their cartoons and their morning movies, put on a morning live 90-minute news information show. Everyone thought Mario Machado would get it. Mario Machado was one of the nicest looking human beings in the world. I mean, he was a Chicano Tyrone power. I mean, he was literally gorgeous. And he spoke three or four different language. He was everybody's ethnic, right? He was part Russian, part Chinese, part Hispanic. That was one of my best jokes about him. He loved that joke. Anyway, one day, and and it was given that he was going to get the show. I was working at, working out material at the Ice House in Pasadena, along with Steve Martin and another couple of comments from New York, a singing group called, uh, oh my God, I can't remember the name. They became very, very famous. And in any event, when I was through, Mario met me in the lobby and he said, John, I just came from an audition for host of the morning show that they're going to do at ABC. Young producer, tall, good-looking guy, very smart. His name's Brad Lockman. I think you should go over and audition. I said, Mario, they're going to give the show to you. I mean, your people got the, got the show. And he said, John, let me tell you something. I'm a great announcer, but I read stuff. He said, your material is based on politics. It's based on what's going around. You can ad lib. You can talk. Go call Brad. So I called Brad Lockman. I got there. There were like 30 guys in suits like this waiting to audition. And I got the audition and I got the job. Just I was staggered. I got the job. So the general manager, his name was John McMahon, an absolute total empty suit. So when I went in for my very first meeting, okay, now I've never been in television. I've never done anything really, okay? Just stand up. And he said, uh, you know, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. I loved your, uh, your audition test. What is it do you think that you could do that make the show different? And I said, well, the first thing I would do is I would open up the phones, because quite often you'll find that the people at home have better questions to ask the guests than the hosts will have, okay? And I'm not putting myself down, but I just know that from experience by being heckled from the audience, okay? <laughs> so he said, hold it, we're not doing that. This is not San Francisco. This is not an intellectual town. You're not doing open, open, open phones. So what else would you do? And I said, well, you know, because of the fairness doctrine, I can't tell people how much of a lie 
The Vietnam War is because of the fake Gulf, Gulf of Tonkin resolution. He said, I don't want any of that on the air. I said, that's what I'm telling you. I can't do that on the air. And also, I'm having difficulty becoming a citizen of this country, knowing how tough it is and how much I want to vote. I am all for equal rights in the protests that Chicanos and Blacks are participating in. But I can't do that either. He said, you're goddamn right you can't do that. <laughs> so what are you going to do? And I said, movie reviews. He says, you're going to do what? And I said, movie reviews. He says, you are like hell. Nobody gives a shit about movies. It's television you got to talk about. I said, hold it. You know where you live? You live in Los Angeles. You know what's in Los <laughs> Angeles? Hollywood. And you know what's in Hollywood? Movie studio. We are the cultural capital of the world. So I'm going to do movie reviews live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And he said, no, you're not. The very first show, we opened the phones. That came at the top of the show. And the next thing I did was a film review. He hated me. He absolutely loathed me, called me in the office, and he ripped me up and down. But guess what? The audience loved it. Mm-hmm. And then so I did Wednesday, and Brad Lockman, bless his heart, he encouraged me to do it. The phone calls became, I mean, we had a staff of four, and within two months, we were bumping heads with the Today Show, which had a staff of 30. It was just terrific. And then a guy named yeah. Bert Kurlutsky, he was a film critic for uh, Los Angeles Magazine. He wrote the funniest one-line review I ever read. It was about a movie called with Dick Van Dyke called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> he said, it starts with a bang, but it ends up chitty. <laughs> oh, I love that. And the best review I ever read about television was Gary Deeb. Gary Deeb was a guy that dubbed me the godfather of reality television. He said, television is the only business in America where competition does not improve the product. So, but get this, what happened is that the studios would call McMahon, say, if you don't fire that son of a bitch, you're not going to have our ads. But he couldn't fire me because the ratings were so good. So I was picked up for a, a, a 13th week, doing fantastic. And, I, and Bob Irvine was, uh, can I tell you one quick story about how shameful I was? <laughs> well, I think that your stories are great. And that's why I want people to also get your book, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, because you have so many great stories and they're just... It, well, it's, one is it's, about how dreadful and egotistical a human <laughs> being in this business can be. Cesar Chavez called to be a guest. And the reason he called to be a guest that there was a 20,000... Chicano moratorium march in LA that turned into a riot. And the best Hispanic writer in America, Ruben Salazar, wrote for the LA Times. He was fabulous. A cop shot a tear gas canister, hit him in the head and killed him. That's what stopped the riot. So anyway, a guy named Corky Gonzalez was arrested. It was a fake arrest like Oswald. And Sirhan, Sirhan, they didn't do it. Uh, and, and charged with starting the riot. And the main character witness was going to be Cesar Chavez. 
And Cesar Chavez called the show and asked if he could be on it. And the reason he called the show is I was the only one who, before the riot, had the two organizers of the riot. Now, imagine this, 70 years, and these names are in my head. Rosalia Rosalia Munoz and Gonzalo Javier. How can I remember that? I can't. It's just the universe put it there. And nobody would put them on the air. I put them on the air to talk about what could happen and what they predicted did happen. So anyway, when I had Muhammad Ali on the air, when nobody wanted him on the air, they wanted him in jail or in a coffin. And I'd put uh, Jane Fonda on the air, known as Hanoi Jane, because right. they're the only literate, famous people who were speaking out of, against this fake Vietnam War. And I was so proud that, that they could speak for me and millions of other Americans about that. Isn't it awful? After the fact, everybody is a hero. Everybody right. worships oh, Muhammad yeah. Ali now. But certainly not at the time. Where, where were the Ken Burns of the world at that time, they weren't even around. So Mm -hmm. anyway, when they came on the show, Bob Irvine, the news director, had asked John McMahon, can I put John Barber's reviews on the news? He'll be the first person in America to be reviewing on the news. And McMahon said, no, you're not putting that a-hole on our news, okay? So he never promoted the show. But when I had Ali and Fond and all these great newsmakers on, there'd be 20 or 30 news people waiting behind the cameras to grab them and take them outside and do interviews with them. So I'm sitting with Cesar Chavez. We have the biggest crowd in the world because now he was made the second most famous person in America by the support of Robert Kennedy, who would have definitely been the president had he not been assassinated again by the CIA at the Ambassador Hotel. So in any event, we're getting near the end of the interview. And during a break, I whispered, now Cesar Chavez came in by himself with one person. He wore Levi's and a plaid shirt, like he just left the farm, okay? Mm-hmm. Sweetest, gentlest soul I ever, ne- nice brown eyes, I ever sat next to, except for my wife. In any event, during commercial break, I said, leaned in nice and Mr. Chavez I'm so ashamed of what I'm about to say to you but you know I had Ali on and I had Miss Fond on to criticize the war because I can't do it and they will never take these clips John McMahon manager doesn't like me and they will never show these clips on the news to promote my show and he's not even looking at me and I kept quiet. And I said, Oh, God, forgive me. I just sound like an egomaniac movie star wannabe. I said, but I need you to do me a favor. And he still doesn't look at me. I said, you see all these people here, obviously, they're going to grab you and want to take you up, put you up against a brick wall and ask you questions that weren't as good as the questions that I asked you. Forgive me for that lack of humility. But could you please tell them you can't do it? because you have a bad back from picking grapes. And I bowed my head in utter abject shame. (laughs) Anyway, a few minutes later, it's over. The the red light goes off. And the crew literally pushes me away, pushes me away from Cesar Chavez. And all these people are grabbing at him. 
And he put up his hand like the Pope. And everybody got quiet. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I deeply, deeply appreciate you being here and wanting to talk to me and talk to the cause, uh, talk to about why I'm defending Corky Gonzalez and about the labor movement and and don't buy grapes movement. I really, I really appreciate that. But I cannot talk to you right now because I have a bad back from picking grapes. <laughs> okay. Wow. Now, now the John McMahon story doesn't finish. I get fired because I just accidentally pick up and read Jim Garrison's book, Heritage of Stone. And I call him and book him on my show. And that's where the title of the book came from, which is in the book about my conversation with Jim Garrison. And he reluctantly agrees to do it, but he warns me that I will never get away with it. And of course I don't because the day after I book him, I'm fired by John McMahon. And Bob Irvine calls me and he said, John, would you come and do your reviews on the news if I can talk McMahon into doing it? I said, absolutely. So I went in to see John McMahon. And I said, John, you know, I know you you don't like me much. And I'm not very fond of you either. But you know what? I've built up a large audience. And you got a really nice newscaster with Bill Bonds. And you got a great news director to show the audience that you're not getting rid of me and to protect a little bit of your audience, let me come when Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and do the reviews that I do in LA Magazine. And he said, no, you're done. And I said, well, hold it. The public will love it. And he said, fuck the public. They don't hire you. I do, and you're done. So now, okay, fast forward a bit. I get fired, I end up at Channel 11 as their critic at large. And as a result of that, uh, Brokaw sees me. Uh, Johnny Carson was, you might, you, you were not old enough, but in 1972, there was a thing called the Munich Massacre. Oh, no, yeah, I remember that. Israeli athletes were murdered by Black Tuesday, uh, a terrorist organization, and the world stopped. Unfortunately, John mm-hmm. McKay on ABC, who was going to broad, so bright a sportscaster, he was so smart, he was able to handle the disaster. The world came to a stop. Now, had that happened when Jack Parr was the host, he would have done a whole show about it with no audience. He would have just talked mm-hmm. to the audience at home. We used to get the feed from The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson going to New York. So uh, we would stop in the middle of uh, uh, six or seven o'clock at night in L.A. and everybody would watch his monologue. And we all stand thinking this guy is going to be talking about Munich. Not a word. Yeah. As a joke of, about Doc Severinsen's uh, uh, a jacket and about Ed McMahon's drinking and that's it. Now, I was mm. going to review a movie that night. I was so angry. And I tore the review up. This sounds like a Frank Capra movie with me <laughs> tearing it up. And I go on the air and I do ad lib five minutes about what it's like to be a Jew in the world today. It got 5,000 requests in two days for copies of it. It was rebroadcast and became the official fundraising film for the United Jewish Appeal for two years, raised $35 million. They planted a tree in my name in Israel. But after I did it, the first call I got 
was from Neil Simon. Right. And Neil Simon was being given the Heart of Israel Award at the Hilton and asked if I would come down and be the host and introduce them, which I which which I did. So anyway, I end up later uh because of Broca, I end up at NBC. And then Bob Howard, the general manager, walks into my little office. He said, John, my wife is so delighted that I hired you. You were her favorite. She never missed the morning show. Are you on Channel 11? And I hired you over the objections of John McMahon. I said, is John, Mc- John McMahon called you from ABC? He said, no, he now works as a program executive at NBC. Well, I just, he left and I stormed over the NBC entertainment offices and I barged into McMahon's office and I pointed at him and I said, you idiot, if you were as good behind your desk as I am on camera, you'd be president of ABC. Now, listen, I don't have the politics to be a nice person. Okay. I can't stand you because you're stupid and you can't stand me because I'm smart, but I'm a professional on camera. I'm no good off camera. You are no good off camera, period. So I will, let's just sort of call it a truce. And then I stormed out of the office. I mean, he literally wanted to kill me. He, he almost jumped over his desk to kill me. Now, guess what? Accidentally, in 1979, I get real people on the air. And guess who Fred Silverman assigns to overlook the show for NBC? John McMahon. (laughs) Thank God the public has never heard or seen this guy ever, ever, ever since. So there you go. (laughs) I didn't mean to go on so long ago. No, but that answers the question about you being a critic. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Well, and you know, you ask so many smart questions because I've been interviewed hundreds of times and nobody has ever asked me as a critic of movies, did you ever think of writing one? I mean, what a good question. And the answer (laughs) is no. But when I was 22 and I was in the mail room at Paramount Studios, there was a fellow who took care of all the publicity photos for all the stars at Paramount. His name was Angel. I won't tell mm-hmm. you his last name because he may, sadly, he may still be alive. He was 32 years of age, 10 years older than me. His father was the most famous uh, pastry maker in Chicago. Right. Very famous. And the father hated the fact that Angelo wanted to come to Hollywood to be a producer and that he'd married a Jew. I mean, so every day there were obscene phone calls. Hey, Angelo. But Angelo came and uh, he he had a house on Gower Street. The front of the house was turned into an actor's studio where we would get together and work out scenes and things. And the back was a brothel. So that was (laughs) that was Angelo's house. It was just great to be in front or back. But he, (laughs) he called me aside one day and he said, you know, Andy Finity is a young Greek guy, and he just signed a deal with Paramount to do a Western with Nick mm-hmm. Adams with a young director named Irv Kirshner. Irv went on to be very famous. And he said, could you write a movie script? 
I said, no, I can't write a I said, I only go to movies. I couldn't write a movie script. He said, why don't you try? And I said, I don't want to try. He said, well, you write great jokes. Well, no, I don't do that. He said, well, if you, if you were going to write a movie, what would you write about? I said, listen, you got no money or very, yeah. He said, I got a few thousand dollars. I said, well, listen, you'd have to do a movie that has no sets. You'd have to do a movie that is outdoors and you'd have to do a movie that takes place in one day. Sun up, <laughs> sun down, that's it. He said, I'll give you $500 if you write one. I said, listen, I don't want your money and I can't write one. He said, please, please, I beg you, I beg you. So I said, well, give me, give me a couple of weeks and let me see what happens. So I sat down and again, it's like Tesla and it's like you driving around. Up popped the screenplay. It was called The Sunsets in Hell. And it's about this big bank robbery in the West that has a trick ending at the end. And the characters are like all the characters in The Treasure of Sierra Madre. An absolutely brilliant film, Treasure of Sierra Madre. I'm not saying my script was brilliant, but that's, <laughs> that's what it was like. So anyway, I give it to Angelo. A week later, he calls me screaming, we got a meeting, we got a meeting. I said, what do you mean we got a meeting? He said, Lindsay Parsons, who was the leading Western filmmaker at Republic, loves the script, and he wants us to meet him in his office. Well, we drive this, he has a junky car, so we drive and park it two blocks away because we don't <laughs> you were driving, we go in and in the meeting is Lindsay Parsons, Barry Sullivan, the actor. Mm. I almost fell off my chair. God, I saw this guy in movies. Well, Barry wanted to be a director. This was the first thing he ever read. He wanted to direct. And then next to him was this guy named Haskell Wexler. Now, Haskell was the son of the founder of Allied Radio in Chicago, a mega millionaire, but he was a brilliant cinematographer. He wanted to get into the cinematographer's union and he was having problems with them because he had shot a, a film without being a member called Stakeout on Dope Street that starred his brother. But he loved this and wanted to do this and get in the union. Well, anyway, Angel and I get back in the car. We're quiet until we get to the Hollywood Bowl, roll down the windows and start screaming. We're going to make a movie. We're screaming like nuts. In any event, a week later, Angelo calls. He's almost in tears because Republic says they're not going to do any more Westerns and that's the end of it. And then his father hears about it and comes out to L.A., grabs his son and takes him back to Chicago. Mm. And that ended that. So I thought it was all over with. And then I got a call from Haskell Wexler. And uh, he said, uh, can you come up to my house? So I got this house, which is this villa above the Hollywood Bowl in the Hollywood Hills. His wife, Marion, was gorgeous. Never wore any makeup. Just a lovely, sweet lady. The son, Mark, was four or five. And the cocker, the uh, uh, German shepherd named Blackie was more house trained than Mark. He, so, but in any event, Haskell said, they're going to break the blacklist. 
And I said, what's the blacklist? I don't know. What <laughs> he said, well, you've heard about it. Well, I said, well, I know there's a lot of this anti-commie stuff going on around the news. That's all I hear about. But I know you people down here have something called the Constitution that doesn't seem to be being used lately and overlooked mm-hmm. for this. But I don't want to get in. I don't know anything about that. He said, well, the blacklist is going to be lit, uh, broken because Frank Sinatra is at Columbia. And he just bought the rights to the execution of Private Slovak, William Bradford Huey's book about the execution of the only deserter in the Second World War. And they have hired uh, uh, Dalton Trumbo to write the script. So that's yeah. gonna, that's that's going to break the blacklist because Dalton was... And I bought this book called A Long Day and a Short Life, written by a fellow named Albert Maltz. Albert Maltz was also blacklisted, one of these guys that served a year in prison. And so that's what it was. His book was about. He handed me the book and he said, I'd like you to go adapt it. I said, listen, I don't do that. The other thing was a fluke. Honest to God, Haskell, I'm not a writer. I said, I don't know what I am. I'm a male boy who wants to be an actor or a comedian. I'm not, I'm not even sure what I want to do. I just want to do something better with my life. And he said, well, you're going to start here and I'll pay you $600 a week for six weeks. Could you do it in six weeks? So I, I write it and I have to send them the material every day. And I get a call. He's working at MGM now. As a cinematographer, he calls me every day about how great it is. Then he calls me to tell me they're going to have a reading of the script, The Long Day and a Short Life. Albert Maltz will be there. There'll be three or four actors there, including Richard Widmark. Richard Widmark was my idol. You would think my idol would be Cary Grant, the greatest actor of all time. It was Richard Widmark because I, do you ever see a movie called Kiss of Death? Victor Mature, written by Bernhardt. Well, Mm -hmm. uh, Widmark plays this sadistic killer named Tommy Udo. He's trying to find the snitch who is Victor Mature and finds Victor Mature's crippled mother in a wheelchair atop the stairs in her house and is asking her where the son is. She won't tell him. So he pushes her down the stairs and he cackles and laughs. I did Tommy Udo for two or three years with all my friends. <laughs> it was my favorite. So I thought, God, I'm going to meet Widmark. Anyway, the meeting there comes about because Sinatra cancels the execution of Private right. Lovac because he got a call from Joe Kennedy and said, my son's running for the presidency and you're, you're going to hinder him if you don't help him. So that, that, that's, that's mm. what happened. Now, one last story about this. Haskell Wexler was the brightest, most intelligent talent I ever met in that town. What you would call a limousine liberal. He had to go to South America to shoot a documentary about poor peasants in a place called Recife in northern Brazil. And he asked if I would come and house sit with the dog, Blackie, uh, for three weeks. So I, I said I would. And I lived in luxury for three weeks. He had the greatest library about communist literature left of Moscow. It had, you know, Das Kapital. It had everything, everything about American history that you never read in a book. 
and everything by Karl Marx. And uh, I mean, I devoured almost a book a day. It was much more thrilling than any movie that I had ever seen. Oh my God, I learned so much there. In any event, when he came back, he wanted. He said, I want to do something with you. And I said, well, Haskell, I can't right now. You know what? I'm, I'm, my father deserted me. He went to the Canadian Army and stayed in, in England or Scotland. You know what? I love your family. I don't have a family. I want to see if I can get one. So I said, I'm going to go hunt for my father. And I did. And I found him and it didn't work out. But he said, listen, write me every day. So every day I wrote him. And he saved the letters. I got back home. As soon as I got home, he called me. He said, get here. I got something for you to do, and you're going to love it. So I went there, and one of the st- he wanted a movie made out of the fact that I had come from a severely abused childhood, that my father deserted us, and the men who came to the house were like grapes. They came in bunches to beat my mother or bed with my mother or booze with my mother. I almost never saw her. And when I was 12, in order to get rid of meat, to have more uncles come into the house, she sent me to a boarding farm in Northern Ontario where I spent two and a half months. And it was, and at one point, myself and two young boys trying to get home from the swinging hole, get lost for two days right. in a forest filled with brown bears and black bears. And they got the army looking for us. They got the air force looking for us and were only found by accident. And it's just, I mean, so he said he wanted me to write that as a movie. So I said, well, I don't like the past. He said, write about it anyway. So I wrote about it. And I I think I just called it a summer thing, just something simple like that. And he loved it. Every day I'd send him pages and then I'm finished. And the film ends with me hopping on a train by myself at 17 and coming to the United States. That's how the film ends. It's a very short thing. So he calls and and the secretary who typed it had tears in her eyes every day. Like you were laughing at some of the reviews. She was crying. And he called me and he said, John, God, the beginning of this stuff is terrific. He said, but you got to change just somehow it's too light at the end. It's like a Disney movie. I said, what do you mean a Disney movie? I've never seen a Disney movie with a drunken mother, you know, who craps on the floor because she's so drunk and gets beat up by guys and ignores her children. Where has Disney ever made a movie about, you know, spousal abuse and stuff like that? And he said, no, no, no. Listen, we can keep some of that in, but it has to have a darker ending. At that point, I flash back when Sinatra canceled the execution of Private Slovak. I told Haskell, there's no reason to cancel a short day in a long life by Maltz because it had nothing to do with anything. It's him in prison. And I said, you know, you're from Chicago. They'll give you the jails and stuff for nothing. You know, you're rich. You don't need a studio. And he passed on. He never did it. So I thought, you know what? He's not going to make this. Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, he said, John, give me a couple of days while I think about what you can do to make it darker. I got so pissed. Mm-hmm. And I said, Haskell, 
You don't have to take two days to think about how it'll get too darker. I can tell you right now. There was a pause and he said, how? I said, make the kid black. There was a long pause in the click of the phone and he never spoke to me again. Now you asked me a critical question. You may not remember the question. You said, have your personal opinions about someone ever affected the way you reviewed them? And the answer is absolutely never. Because Haskell Wexler was by far, like James Wong Howe, one of the great cinematographers in film. Um, Paths of Glory, he did. I said he deserves an Oscar for this. And he got the Oscar. I mean, as a comic, I absolutely had a horrible time and a horrible experience with Mort Saul. But Mort Saul was a comic genius. And I always went to see him, even though I never wanted to to talk to him. Anyway, there were, you know, there are so many stories. How long have we been talking or have I been talking? <laughs> it's been a while, but what, what, what astounds me is what I really appreciate about you is the fact that you never sold out and that I always put anyone on, on a pedestal when they, when they don't sell out. There's a lot of people who sell out because they want to climb that ladder to success, but I really appreciate it. And working with you on Your Mother's Not a Virgin, this became very apparent. Well, you know, uh, you know what, like I said, I hate to talk about myself, but it seems to me we've been talking almost an hour. I want to say very, very quickly, you asked about writing scripts. I turned down to write a chance to write a script for Ray Star for $50,000 that I don't want to get into. And the major stars that I bombed as a critic, you asked me if I was ever threatened. Well, the only person I was ever threatened physically by was uh, the guy who who made, uh, oh, God, who was it? Sam Peckinpah. Mm. He's the only guy that threatened to literally kill me. He said, I'm going to cut off your fucking head and piss down your throat after I hammered one of his movies. But... He did the thing called The Westerners with Brian Keith, the greatest Western ever on television. But Neil Simon, I told him that he should fire himself as his own casting director because he ruined the Sunshine Boys. Burt Reynolds and Bob Hope. I told Bob Hope he should retire because he was becoming the Jagger Hoover humor. Every one of them became my closest friends and all wanted to be on my show. So if you go to my site, www.johnbarbersworld.com, you'll see Burt Reynolds' favorite interview. And both took off entertaining the troops one Christmas to come and do my little local show. You know what? I have to have you back again. I have to have you back when you can talk some more. I mean, oh, my God, the stuff we, the movies that we did at the time. I was fired three times from my reviews, and we can't get it to it now. Anyway. There's a lot. You have a lot of material, and I I hope the audience enjoyed listening to you as much as I did. Um, And you know what, John, John, you keep saying, you know, that you're having an ego or whatever, but you wouldn't let me put your byline 
on this book, but you deserve to be on it. No, right. no, 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 right. no, no. I had nothing to do. I just wrote the reviews and you just edited them. Okay, I had nothing to do with it. But I am telling you, I'm thrilled with it. I am as thrilled with it as I am the first book and the second book because it's somebody else who likes me. Okay. <laughs> anyway, bless your heart. Thank you so much. For, and we're going to do this again. Okay, John. You know what? I'm going. We're pre-taping this, but I want to do this when we are absolutely live because okay. I want to talk about the reviews that were the most important that I ever did and played a great part in my life and in America's life. Mm-hmm. Sure. So we will be back. Good. Who said that? Charles MacArthur? Or no, who was it? Uh, who was that German actor? I will be back. I'll be back. Who's I'll that? be back. Yeah. <laughs> Schwarzenegger. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, him. We'll be back. Okay, dear. <laughs> Have a great rest of the day. And hope to see you again soon. Sounds good. Take care. Okay, bye, dear. In two weeks, the amazing, multi-talented, mega-million-dollar-selling recording artist and an actor in over 70 films, the one and only outstanding meatloaf on Talking Movies. Till then, good luck and stay well.